Yes. Can they hear us? <laughs> Hi. You guys can hear us? Okay, yes. Chris, you check too? your mic. Yeah. You got it? Okay. Yeah. Hey, uh, so I was told to do some housekeeping things before we started. Two things, uh, if you people can squish toward the center of your rows and get really cozy with your new friend next to you, that'll let more people in, I guess. And the second thing is, you're not allowed to film anything. Turn off your cell phones. No, you can film things. But you gotta turn off your cell phones, um, make sure they don't vibrate or you get a text or an email or something. And I think that was it for housekeeping. Mm -hmm. All right, so we're gonna get started. I'm Joseph Staten. I'm a writer and design director at Bungie. And my name's Chris Barrett, and I'm the art director on Destiny. And Chris and I have been working together for about 15 years now through all the Halo games. Um, but what we're excited to talk about today is our new game, Destiny. So Destiny is Bungie's next great action shooter set in a persistent world that you share with other players. And so today, we're gonna open a world, a little window, into how we and everyone else at Bungie has worked to build this world. Now some of you may have never built a new IP, or maybe you built a new IP from the ground up, but maybe you haven't done it with a really big team, like a 400 person team. In the hour that we've got, we're gonna talk really frankly about some of the challenges that we've faced and how we've worked to overcome them. We also wanted to say up front that there uh, really isn't any secret to our world building process. At Bungie, we do the same thing all of you guys do, uh, gather in conference rooms, write on whiteboards, argue about art and fiction, all that stuff, uh, come up with cool ideas, throw them away, start over. Um, so we're, what we're gonna do is take you on a, a journey through our creative process, you know, from our first ideas to where we ended up, uh, our last ideas. We're also gonna show quite a bit of art that I hope you guys enjoy as well. And as we walk through these world-building pillars and the challenges they, they presented, Chris and I really hope that you guys can take away um, some lessons, some information from us that'll help you build better worlds, regardless of the size of the world or the kind of game that you're making. We're hoping that what we say is really applicable to a lot of different things. And if we leave you guys with more questions than answers, don't worry, we're gonna set aside about 15 minutes at the end for some Q&A. So at Bungie, uh, we love building action games, as you guys know. And when we moved on from Halo, we weren't just excited about you know, building another great series of action games. We were excited about building this whole new world. It was a really awesome opportunity for us. So early on, we said to each other, let's build a world where we can tell any great story we want, a place millions of people will want to visit again and again for the next 10 years and more, a pretty lofty goal. But. Yeah, and, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but we really did want to build a world that mattered um, to us and people who played it, a world that lasted. But we also wanted to build a world that was really, really flexible, where we could accommodate any crazy idea that we dreamed up or anybody else on the team too. And like Chris said, I mean, that sounds like madness, right? We'd never even attempted to build something like this before. We had no idea really how we'd achieve this this goal. So where we started was by taking a really critical eye to the work that we'd done before. And by that, of course, I mean the Halo games. Each Halo game was really a labor of love, and we're proud of all of them, even the end of Halo 2. <laughs> but each Halo game 
was kind of like the Alaskan pipeline. And by that I mean it was filled with really energizing content. Each story had lots of great twists and turns, but each Halo game was kind of like a pipe. It was a one-way shot through a really narrow slice of a much larger Halo world that we'd built. And to be fair, Halo isn't the only action shooter that works like this. Most of them do. And the real tragedy, uh, you know, especially if you're an artist, is your content really only gets used once. Uh, you know, players charge through all that beautiful stuff you've made, you know, this narrow pipe devouring all your hard work, and you really have very little reason to return to those spaces. And we didn't want Destiny to work like that. We wanted to build a big world that encouraged you to explore off that path, a world that evolved and was always giving you new reasons to come back to all that art we made. So we asked ourselves early on, what are the pillars of this new world that we wanted to build? First, we decided that Destiny's world needed to be hopeful and inviting. Sure, we'd want to make dark and dangerous places where the monsters hung out. But overall, Destiny needed to be a place that you wanted to spend time in. Because, I mean, what's the point of building a world that's going to evolve and change if players don't want to spend any time there? Second, our world needed to feel real, but to be a kind of idealized reality that would ground you in the familiar stuff that you knew, but was also flexible enough to accommodate any crazy genre-bending ideas that we came up with. And third, the world needed to be filled with mysteries and adventures. Reasons to come back to this world night after night, week after week, year after year. And last, it needed to be a place where you could become a legend, where you could become a hero in this world shared with millions of other heroes. It needed to be a world that recognizes your re and rewards your achievements, and it needs to be a world where you can leave a mark. So, let's hit pillar number one. We needed to build a world that's hopeful and inviting. So how do we do that? So many years ago, one of the first versions of Destiny that we explored was a fantasy world. And what was appealing about that was the history, the myths, and the legends. And it was a really nice change of pace after Halo. You know, fantasy gives you this opportunity for all kinds of evocative imagery. Things like castles in the clouds in the distance and uh, tents and horses and all that stuff. <laughs> Things uh, like beasts and artifacts, ancient swords with cool names, you know, stuff that's, that's really fun to, to create. As well as monsters and heroes. And giant frogs. Yes! <laughs> and grub lords, yeah. and giant rat piranha fish. Man, there was some cool stuff. <laughs> so if you take an image like this one, uh, with ancient ruins uh, up on a hill, you know, kind of a classic fantasy scene, it asks the question, you know, what's buried beneath those ruins? And as a player, you, know, you want to find out. You want to go explore that. You know, it invites you to explore. And that was a really great aspect we loved about fantasy. But you know, we couldn't, couldn't shake the lure of sci-fi. We love sci-fi as well. You know, it has the possibility of this hopeful future, spaceships, different worlds, and of course shooting aliens, which everybody loves. And like I said, you know, ancient ruins are cool, you know, but so are derelict spaceships. You know, both are powerful mysteries begging you to explore them. 
So then we asked ourselves, why can't we have both? You know, mixing the ancient history texture of fantasy with the hard-hitting punch of sci-fi. You know, what does a buried tomb look like in this futuristic setting? What does gold look like next to an assault rifle? It looks awesome. It does. <laughs> Especially if the gold's blue. Yes. So then we began experimenting with that mix. We were some adventurers sort of exploring an ancient tomb filled with treasures. And that, that started to feel really cool. You know, so we started exploring this genre that we called mythic science fiction. And then we started trying to find and define those boundaries of what worked and what didn't, like Grub Lords or whatever. Um, you know, some things leaned a little more sci-fi, like abandoned colonies on Europa, or a little more fantastic, like crumbling alien ruins on Venus. You know, this wasn't something we could easily reference. You know, it wasn't something we could just Google uh, and hand it to an artist and say, make this. You know, this was something uh, that felt new, so we had to do a lot of concept work to really define that, that matchup. And finally, we had this. This really captured everything we wanted. You know, it absolutely supported the hopeful and inviting pillar that we wanted. It had amazing cloaks and armor and spaceships, personalized guns, all this, all this stuff we were trying to merge together in this, in this way. And it showed heroes working together heading out into this wide frontier. And it also had a tiger, as you can see, a space tiger, <laughs> uh, which is uh, where we got our project code name. So when you're building a new world, images like this are hugely important. There's something you can hold up to anybody on your team, you know, maybe someone who hasn't even seen art from the game yet, and just have them look at it and respond on a gut emotional level. I don't even know what that is, but I know we need to build it. You know, to have a player or a potential publisher uh, say, I don't know what that game is, you know, but I want to be in that world. And that's what we were going for. Even though it looks expensive. <laughs> Wasn't at all. Not at all. Uh, so images like these are, are touchstones. We call them postcards from the world of destiny. And they're rare and powerful because they set fire to your imagination. They excite your inner seven-year-old. And most importantly, they ask a ton of important questions. You know, for example, who are they? Where are they? Are they on Earth? Are they in a galaxy far, far away? And all those questions brought us to our first big challenge that we faced. What's the center of this hopeful and inviting world? You know, when you're world building, once you know the heart of your world, you can build around it. But if you don't define your heart up front, all you're really doing is spinning your wheels in a pile of awesome concept art. When we were exploring the fantasy genre, this is how we imagined the center of Destiny's world. A cheerful, beautiful city. A place that welcomed you home at the end of your adventures. A place that was surrounded by darkness and danger, though which made it a place that heroes needed to protect. And when we began to mix fantasy with sci-fi, we explored a different center of our world, a spaceship. So as you can see, here's a few of the hundreds of iterations we went through. You know, like I said, these are just a few of the ones uh, I picked out for, for this presentation. Um, but we never quite hit the right design. We couldn't quite get it. You know, making a castle in space and having that work is, is pretty hard. 
But we did narrow it down a little bit, and we sort of started to go back and forth between two big ideas, something like this, more of a, a space station, and a massive ship, a true ship, maybe the last ship of a lost human civilization filled with survivors of a mysterious cataclysm long ago. And at the center of our uh, space city was this, a hangar, a place where heroes could gather together and show off their, their armor and their weapons and other trophies like personal spaceships. And through even more iteration, our spaceship evolved into this, a strange alien artifact. But as Chris and his team started to iterate on art inside of that artifact, it really started to push too hard into straight up sci-fi. So what we did is we ended up exploring a city on Earth itself, you know, a place that was familiar, uh, but still had lots of uh, fantastical elements. It was a mix we started to, to enjoy. Like. So deciding on the city uh, was the first big crux moment in our world building process. So many other places you know, would be defined in relation to this one. And we were sold on Earth, for sure. That felt really good. Um, and making this the last safe city on Earth. But we still hadn't gotten the visuals exactly right. We needed another touchstone image that fired our imaginations, like the, uh, the one with the space tiger. And after months of iteration, we landed on this one. Some of you might recognize this. So I remember when you brought this image to me for the first time, and I remember you were, you were really excited, you know, you loved the composition, um, but you also had a number of questions. Basically, how does this work in our world? Does this belong in our, in our world? Uh, you know, what is this sphere we talked about? Um, how is it pushing back those clouds? What strange powers does it possess? You know, why would anybody build a city underneath it? I mean, why would they build the last safe city underneath this strange, inscrutable sphere? That sounds like madness. Does it work? And we had a long conversation about these questions, and we both realized, I think, a fundamental truth about world building, which, as a world builder, your job is not to answer all the questions. I mean, hell, you're crazy if you think you can even identify all the questions. Your job as a world builder is, first and foremost, to make your audience curious to give them just enough information and detail so that they can begin to fill out your world with their own imaginations. Because guess what? Nine times out of 10, their answers are gonna be way better than yours. I think it works the same with paintings as well. Mm -hmm. Like when you paint every little detail, it's not as good as when you leave some of the brush strokes a little vague. And you know, I think the same works for uh, these kind of images. Yeah, and it's absolutely also true for, for your team members. The people who are actually gonna make this stuff um, you need to inspire them, make them curious, but then you need to unleash them, unleash all their, their power to execute on these ideas. And that's really the power of a postcard image like this one. And then the last thing you asked me, of course, after we talked about this was, well, what, what do we call this thing? You know, what do we call our sphere? And it took us days in conference rooms, getting high on the whiteboard marker fumes, <laughs> splitting migraines. Don't ever use Expo ones, do the Expo two. They're terrible. That's a pro tip. And finally, we landed on a name for this thing, and we called it the Traveler. So 
So that spurred all kinds of uh, new uh, images that we could explore since we had settled on that and really liked it. So we started looking at what a closer image you know, of the traveler and the city beneath it. Here that's shown some player ships flying in. And we also decided to put this wall around it you know, to keep out the bad guys. Uh, it reinforced the message, you know, this is the last safe city and you need to protect it as a hero. And above all that, uh, a tower where player heroes could gather to swap stories, trade loot, gear up for the next adventure, really that thing that the fantasy city uh, had in it and that we were going for, like the, the tower uh, we wanted to do as well. Something bright and hopeful, inviting, and birds. Every concept artist knows that any painting is better with birds. And, uh, and spaceships. <laughs> and spaceships. Spaceships make everything better. And our city definitely needed a hangar, a hangar too. And while I quickly showed the city, Oh, yeah. This hangar, right? It belonged in a spaceship. It belonged in a tower as well. It was a place where you could store your personal ship, your metaphorical horse, when you weren't charging off into the frontier, into this wilderness that we were creating where Earth and all the other planets in the solar system had been made strange and mysterious by the passage of time and the, the plans and plots of these strange alien forces. So we had the center of this uh, mythic, hopeful sci-fi world. You know, now we needed to prepare for an army of content creators coming off of Reach to bring it to life. And so we began laying down a style guide. And central to that was this concept of idealized reality. What does that mean? What is it? So one of the first places we looked to was Westerns because they really provide this great mood inspiration. You know, the feeling of being on this frontier, like we talked about, perfect for you know, how we wanted to treat Earth and our, our whole solar system. Treating that like a frontier sounded really cool. Some of the films that excited us visually uh, and that de depicted this beautiful but mysterious future we were going for are Stalker and Solaris. You know, they, con they contain amazing composition and lighting and mood. Uh, every frame is like this painting, which is really, really cool. Uh, it's this idealized reality. And not in subject, of course, but in, in the visuals. And it was a great reference for the world and uh, cinematic artists. But we didn't want to take ourselves too seriously. Uh, Terry Gilliam movies like Time Bandits have this great sense of adventure to them, uh, but also humor and inventiveness, and an awesome treasure map. And we loved the idea of this futuristic game that you could have an ancient map in. And that became one of our keystone images, you know, stars juxtaposed with this old map. You can actually still see it here as part of the PowerPoint background. Terry Gilliam totally would have put a giant frog in a spaceship, just so you know. <laughs> he might still. <laughs> Maybe he'll direct the movie. Um, the other thing was 70s sci-fi art. Uh, one of my favorite painters, John Harris, uh, his, his palettes and ideas, everything feels super epic and larger than life, you know, which is a key part of that idealized reality we were going for. And like Joe said about the, the world and the fiction, the, his imagery really invites you to know more. It doesn't tell you the whole story. Why is that big chunk of rock being lifted in this beam and the little, you know, little people up on the hill? And we also needed inspiration 
for the dark and dangerous places in our world. Uh, something we look to is this surrealistic fantasy artist such as uh, Bixinski, where uh, the juxtaposition of these monolithic Gothic architectural shapes with the chaotic organic patterns of decay is a really cool look that informed uh, one of our race's architecture. Peter Grick as well. Uh, you know, he has repeated patterns, the play of order and chaos, nature and structure. Really like that play. And uh, he influenced, uh, heavily influenced the feel of Venus. Also anime, uh, Japanese comic book art was really a strong influence for a lot of our characters and vehicles, more so than we had before. Sense of style and fashion that comes through in a lot of that work. Uh, and this really great futuristic industrial design. And this uh, you know, idealized reality was, was new for us, like I mentioned. And we had this big team coming on board uh, you know, really soon. You know? And so we had this totally different IP for them to, to start working on. And this, the Halo team knew hardly anything about this new world we'd been working on. And we didn't even know that much about it at that point, really. Um, they needed to understand you know, the new direction and be inspired by it. And our big challenge was to unify all these influences I just mentioned and more and turn them into a concrete art direction that they could follow. And now even to this day, many years later, you know, it's still a challenge. I don't think any, everybody uh, exactly gets it, but you know, uh, more than anything, it requires concepts, a lot of concepts. More, you know, we actually made more than all of the previous Bungie games combined in concept art. Enough to build seven worlds. Seven worlds. So how would we unify all that together? And I'll just show you a few. Obviously, this is a much larger topic than we can talk about here. But one of the ways we attempted to unify and stylize that world was through palette. And we wanted our colors to look slightly aged, like a 60 screen, I say this to our artists, like a 60 screen print that has been sitting in an attic. Um, you know, this allows us to take these futuristic elements like spaceships or guns or whatever, and it allows you to add this feeling of history, this subtle feeling of history with that aged, aged palette. And from there, we went on to gather references of interesting non-traditional palettes, you know, images that had this aged look, like I mentioned, and this idealized reality we were going for. Here's a few examples. And obviously another thing is in our engine itself, you know, by using uh, post effects, you know, can unify all these different elements together uh, to feel part of the same world. It also allowed us to experiment, which was great, like in real time, you know, dial in that historic look we wanted, try and capture some of the feeling of those references. And here's how some of those influences fed into our first character designs. You can see some of the anime influences, I think, in the armor, uh, some of the attitude and cloth from the westerns in the middle image, and definitely some of the fantasy elements showing through, obviously, with the, the warlock with the gun there. And our world started coming together as well. This is a place called the Black Garden. And you can see the John Harris and the Peter Grick influence really coming through, I think. Here are the dead forests of Mars, uh, exploring the non-traditional palette that I mentioned, going for that, and you know, not what you would expect on Mars, which was a really cool thing to play with. 
And of course, a good game needs giant onyx pyramid ships. But uh, that's a really cool image, I love this one. But I'm not allowed to talk about those yet. Maybe someday down the road. Which brings us to pillar number three. At Bungie, we really believe that mystery and adventure begin at the intersection of the expected and the unexpected. At places in the world where strong visual themes collide, where the familiar meets the strange. So after Earth, the next most familiar place in our solar system is the moon. And as we began to explore the moon, we asked ourselves, well, what if you went to the moon and it looked a lot like this when you first got there, but the deeper you went, the stranger the moon became. So imagine you're exploring an abandoned moon base and you start to notice fissures in the ground that are flickering with strange lights and seeping gases. And then imagine following one of these fissures and coming upon a giant alien hellmouth cracking the lunar surface. And then imagine taking a treacherous path that leads you even deeper into the heart of a hidden fortress where a dark army dreams of conquest and corruption. But I'm not allowed to talk about that yet. <laughs> we worked on that one. Yeah. So we explored many, many places like this that were ripe with mystery and adventure where we could lead players from familiar to the strange. Just a couple of our, of our favorite images from that phase. Uh, this image of the jungle-choked towers of the Mumbai push, or the flooded streets of old Chicago. If you look carefully enough, you can see Oprah's ghost. <laughs> or a frozen city occupied by an army of machines where buildings, skyscrapers, towers have become dungeons, their lower floors buried in snow. We created a ton of this stuff. And the problem with that was that it created another, another big challenge. And that challenge was one of focus. How do we narrow our focus and move a big team that was still struggling to wrap its head around mythic sci-fi and idealized reality, just like we were, into production mode. And remember, we weren't just trying to build a world that would last for a, you know, a Halo eight to 10 hour sort of standard shooter campaign. We were setting out to build a big living world that evolved over time, a world that drew you back again and again, you know, week to week, year to year. And the scope of that task was frankly just overwhelming. So ultimately our solution to this challenge boiled, boiled down to three things. First, a unifying visual theme to bind all the places in the world together. So no matter where you went, you would always see some version of nature ascendant over lost human civilization. Second, we needed postcards, just like those images we showed earlier of the heroes with the tiger or the traveler hanging low above the earth, postcards that would define mood and palette and core fiction for the places in our world and third, we needed a tool, a really powerful tool, one that we did not have, that would let artists and designers collaborate way more effectively and iterate more efficiently than they ever had in the Halo games. So here we have the postcard uh, for a place called the Buried City on Mars. 
and it does a great job of capturing uh, that unifying theme we were going for. Um, and creating these isn't just for art direction and the artists. There was a collaboration to get to this point with fiction, the world designers, lighting artists, skybox artists, the whole team getting to look at this and make some, uh, you know, go back and forth and make some decisions on this and get something we really all liked. And we also use these postcards for planning and discussing, for example, graphics features with the graphics engineers. You know, we could explore things like God rays or water technology or lens flares, instance counts, that kind of thing that, you know, we could go back and forth and, and talk about those features. And, and once all the disciplines had signed off on those target looks for those spaces, uh, we can move confidently into production, you know, with a target that we could rally around. So here's one of the postcards from the moon. And to see how that postcard, this postcard might, you know, translate into our engine, I thought it'd be fun to show you a quick little video um, of, our, uh, of the moon base being built turning from postcard into our engine uh, using our world building tool we call Grognock. After, uh, after years of making all that concept, it's still actually really cool to see uh, that they, they turned out. You know, we were able to build those spaces that we dreamed of. It's really cool. Um, so we had the tool uh, that we needed to build the destinations in our world. And next, we needed to populate all those crazy destinations we came up with with a lot of bad guys. We didn't want them to be empty, of course. You needed aliens to shoot. So in Halo, we had one uh, main enemy. And to fill out a world as big as Destiny, we actually needed a lot more than that. We needed many, and we, and we wanted to do that. We wanted to this place to feel uh, exciting with lots of different characters to fight. So we wanted them to feel harmonious as well, like puzzle pieces, uh, to carve out different thematic buckets for them. So what we did was line them up and created a, a mood board, like you see here. And here we're just really quickly able to explore color palette, silhouettes, size relationships, primitive shapes, what their characters and vehicles might look like, how they might uh, form up, uh, just, just through this quick study. And this was, I mean, uh, 
from a writing point of view, from a fiction point of view, a design point of view, this was super exciting. Actually, when Chris, you were working on this, um, Chris actually painted this one. Looks like awesome. this. Um, when Chris was working on this, I had actually taken a little break from uh, Destiny pre-production, was working on Reach for a bit, and when I came back, you know, Chris showed me this mood board, and I thought it was awesome, and right away my mind started churning on names for these guys, and backstories, and ideas for performance. Uh, we talked a lot about how they would die. That was one of our, our big conversations. And I remember in our conversation about death, uh, I asked, which we often have, I asked Chris, hey, what's up with the green guy with the, the, the light shooting out of his head? What's, what's that? And Chris said... Said something like, you know, that's his soul ripping out of his body. That's his soul ripping out of his body. And that's not the kind of thing that would easily fit into a Halo game. Definitely not into a modern military shooter. But screaming souls, you know, catastrophically evacuating someone's skull is great for mythic science fiction. And at this point, we were still ourselves sort of struggling what the genre meant. And so when Chris said souls popping, I, I assumed he was speaking metaf uh, metaphorically. And so I took a couple days writing, trying to figure out the science, or at least the science fiction, about this soul. What was it really? You know, who were these aliens? Did they evolve in some distant nebula where they consumed noble gases and that catalyzed their evolution and when you killed them it wasn't really their soul that came out of their bodies it was this blah 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 and I pitched this idea to Chris like my 15 minute spiel and I was really excited really proud of the work I was I had done and Chris sort of stared at me and looked at me and he said uh I think it's you mean their souls <laughs> isn't that, that sounds cooler that yeah. sounds cooler and and I, <laughs> and I had to admit it, it was way cooler and uh, for me, that was an early lesson that I learned again and again, where world building or any creative collaboration is all about, all about flexibility. You know, when you're building a new world, you don't just want to put arbitrary genre rules around what's possible and what's not possible. For a long time, you need to you know, make everything possible. And I also learned that your art director is usually always right. It's true. So Thank you. That was for you, by the way. <laughs> Great. One fan. Uh, so. So these turned into more detailed silhouette studies from those uh, early thumbnails, starting to explore a little bit more of the shapes, how different units in that race might look together, different hierarchy, which then turned into these final inspirational renders. Here's an early Vex sketch, sort of walking forward, starting to define some of the major shapes, the, the fan shape on the head, the single red eye. A little bit more fleshed out painting. Starting to define some of the materials, the brass, sort of hammered brass look, sort of bridge the gap between it being this futuristic robot, giving it this timeless feel. I thought that was a, a good way to make them uh, mesh well in the mythic sci-fi world. So eventually, we created postcards for the enemy races, just like we did for the environments, trying to capture the emotional essence of each race, not just what they looked like, you know, how they might work in an environment, where they might come from, how they might you know, group together, uh, that kind of thing. You can start to see, like I said, the red glowing eyes and you know, them coming out of the water. That was a, a way we could explore that. So these postcards you know, were really a touchstone for the character artists, of course, um, but also fiction and world art and the animators uh, as well. Like you can start to imagine what these big lumbering beasts might start to move like. 
So that inspired a lot of their early animation uh, explorations. Here's another uh, postcard for a race we call the Hive, you know, trying to capture this feeling of undead royalty, definitely one of the more fantastic elements in our game. You know, these dry, flaking zombies, you know, ancient armor crusted into these, onto their skin. You know, a lot, like I said, a lot of medieval fantasy influences. And, and it actually took a lot of iteration on this one to find the right look and feel. Uh, you know, something that felt like a zombie but was alien and was unique to our game. Hopefully we hit that, I think we did. And finally, The Fallen. This is our first uh, official image that we released. Um, you know, the, the spider pirates, these four arms, four eyes, you know, their mechs uh, that, that walk behind them. Sort of this mix of ancient and rare technology and escaping souls. Yes! <laughs> and if we hadn't been super flexible, these guys still would have just had two arms instead of four, and four is way better. Four is always better. So, of course, Destiny isn't just about the places you go and the things you fight. It needs heroes to solve its mysteries and to tackle its adventures. Heroes that, in tackling these adventures, will become legends. And this pillar presented its big challenge right away. We saw this one coming right off the bat. How do you go from a world where everyone plays a single character, like the Master Chief, to a world where every player is their own character, their own hero, where there are millions of different kinds of heroes out building their own personal legend. And of course, this is a challenge that I'm sure you guys have tackled. This is something lots of games tackled, but it just wasn't something that, that we at Bungie had ever had to do before. So to tackle this challenge, what we did first was work to nail down the small set of fundamental choices that we wanted players to make during character creation. And the first of these was race, player race. And we wanted race selection to be simple, not off-putting right when you started the game. We wanted it to be a, a quick gut emotional decision that you made with just a little bit of fiction, a little bit of art about the mask that you wanted to wear in the world, what your personality was. And much like our approach to, to destinations, we wanted to cover a lot of, we wanted to cover a spectrum of choices for race from familiar to the more exotic or strange. So our first choice, not surprisingly, was the most familiar choice. You could choose to be a human. And what was important to us about humans were their relatability, their toughness, and relative to other choices, they just weren't complicated. So there, from, from the art standpoint, we started looking at soldiers and sports stars, action heroes that kind of uh, summarize that feeling. Here you have a postcard, a human. And then moving a little bit away from the familiar to something more exotic, uh, we decided on a race called the Awoken. He's so dreamy. He is dreamy. <laughs> Wait, you mean him or you, Barry? Oh. Mm -hmm. So these guys, of course, are exotic, and they're beautiful, dreamy, and mysterious. So they're, you know, like I said, uh, we looked at vampires, elves, ghosts, angels, things that really captured that uh, exotic sort of ethereal uh, feel. Here's a postcard of the Awoken.
And then the last race choice, our third race choice that we looked at, not the last one, the third one we looked at, was something we call the EXO. And this pushes even farther away from the familiar human choice into something that's a little bit more sinister, powerful, these tireless war machines. So there we look towards you know, things like the undead, uh, you know, obviously uh, Master Chief from Halo or, or Spartans, and things like Terminator. Here's the postcard of the EXO sort of slumped against the wall after some battle. And then we investigated one more choice. <laughs> the Tiger Man. Tiger Man was awesome. Tiger Man was noble. Tiger Man was bestial. Tiger Man was wise. This was a, this is kind of a dire time for the concept artist trying to, <laughs> trying to figure out how to make this work. Uh, this was an idea that, you know, uh, we had had, but just didn't. Uh, Wait, you're didn't saying, you're saying tiger fish in a robe doesn't work? <laughs> so luckily. Uh, <laughs> so luckily, some things in world building don't make the cut. But we did get some funny images out of it. <laughs> So another lesson, right? When you're building a big world, a giant world, some things don't actually belong in that world. Some things you have to leave on the cutting room floor. And we've learned that as important a thing as flexibility is, equally important is a strong sense of editorial, deciding what to leave behind. And Tiger Man, we loved his tie, <laughs> but we had to leave him behind. That was our last effort to get a tiger in, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> it still may appear someday. Yes. Um, so, you know, when, when players are creating these heroes, you know, they're, they're creating, we're creating this game where everybody gets to be a hero. And, you know, we have characters with a wide array of different costumes and outfits so everybody could look unique. And we had to make clothing and armor that people desire, uh, that people want to wear. So we needed to research and understand fashion it's actually pretty hard, you know, this is something we never had to do before, or, or, or very little of at Bungie. You know, we're used to making giant guns and spaceships. And the same goes for hair. You know, in Halo, our main hero never even took off his helmet. But, you know, no one wants a lame haircut in real life, so they certainly don't want one in their make-believe world, or, you know, if they do, they can maybe make that choice. And we needed to research, uh, you know, makeup trends and accessories and tattoos and that kind of thing to really develop a, a style uh, that let players customize themselves really easily that felt unique to Destiny. So if all these tattoos and haircuts starts making you think MMO, don't worry. It's a bungee action shooter. And the next choice we wanted players to make was about combat. And I'm talking about class, player class, their style of fighting, how they wanted to project power into the world. And like with race, we wanted to give them three choices that you know, bridge the familiar to the slightly more exotic. And we started with the Titan. And the Titan is our future soldier class. Right, so going off that keyword, you know, we looked towards big, heavy space marines, things that were sort of relatable 
you know, relatable technology, things that really encompass sort of this force, uh, you know, this toughness. The next class choice was the hunter, our bounty hunter, our explorer of the wilderness, our frontiersman. So you can see some of the Western influences again here, things like cloth and uh, you know, cloaks and uh, this sort of showy improvised technology, you know, cool collected uh, feeling. And even more exotic, the warlock, our space wizard. <laughs> Who doesn't want to be a space wizard? No one. <laughs> so a, a lot of people are actually pretty skeptical on the team. Uh, you know, wizards with guns, what? Like, uh, they thought it was a pretty weird uh, mix-up. But, you know, some of those same people are actually playing now as the warlock, which is cool. I think it, uh, it's this really neat uh, mashup. I, I'm certainly going to play probably a robot uh, space wizard, which is even cooler. And here we have the final postcards of our three player classes, sort of the touchstone image used to sort of branch all the, all the gear we're going to make off of. And so not only did we need to design those three main classes, uh, we needed to make a ton of gear that players could earn and collect you know, as you fought heroically through this world. And we had a little bit of this uh, you know, before mixing, matching different pieces of armor but we had no idea you know, what we were in for, uh, how complex that system was gonna be. Making sure all the different pieces, you know, or combination of pieces look good together, that they didn't clip you know, into each other, and, and that they still were recognizable as this class theme. You know, if you get randomly different you know, concepts of, of pieces, having that make, look, make it look coherent. So here's some of the Titan designs that we came up with. And one of the main things we learned uh, defining these uh, or, or developing these was just to have a couple key defining characteristics that carried through all the, all the designs. Here, for example, they have the, a large, bulkier V shape to the, to the character silhouette, sort of uh, heavier up top, with an 80-20 uh, mixture of armor uh, to non-armor, and design cues like the sweeping back helmet or the angled thigh pads. Then we have the hunter, and looking at a few different outfits that the hunter will have, and using hoods and capes as that defining characteristic, something that would really stand out as a silhouette uh, on the battlefield. A little bit looser clothing, and also a 50-50 armor uh, ratio, armor to cloth ratio. And then the warlock class, with a, actually an inverted uh, version of the uh, Titan, which was a, this triangle-shaped silhouette this way, I guess. Uh, you know, it's dark face mask and an 80% cloth to 20% armor ratio. That helped inform the concept artist and the character builders about sort of how much, how much, to, how much to use. And also what was really fun uh, that we, you know, was exciting about this new world is we, need, we could design all this exotic gear and really, really rare stuff for players to find where imaginations could go a little bit crazier. You know, things like glowing cloaks or, you know, uh, things with horns on them, something we could never do before. It was just really fun. So here's a couple, uh, a couple uh, examples of some rare hunter cloaks that you can uh, find in the game. And, uh, you know, I, I have a graphic design background and I love graphic design, so I think you'll see a lot of that coming through in Destiny, certainly can in some of these cloak designs. So in Destiny, guns are like swords. 
players will find many different weapons as they're playing, the different styles and color and proportions. From sniper rifles, shotguns, to rocket launchers and heavy machine guns. Um, and all these guns were built modularly as well so we could mix and match different parts. Um, and also, like we did with the, the player gear, you know, rare and exotic weapons. You know, shown here in the top left is some we call Thorn. Uh, top right, Pocket Infinity. It's super fun naming these. And uh, Super Good Advice is the one on the bottom. <laughs> So that was a lot of concept art we just showed you guys. Um, and it's taken us many years, obviously, to get, get where we are. And uh, we still have a lot of hard work ahead of us, of course. But we didn't just want to show you guys pictures. Uh, we wanted to show you a little bit of how some of that early uh, concept and whiteboard arguments and sketches, all that stuff turned into what we have today. I'll show you a little video. All right, well, I'm gonna, we only have about nine minutes left, so I'm gonna get right to it. Those of you who have burning questions, if I peer out into the darkness, I think there are probably some microphones that are gonna make their way somewhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're up front there. Okay, great. So whoever, uh, yeah, go for it. Uh, well, first off, I just wanna say that I, I really like, I know it's not an MMO, but I really love the direction that you're going with this largely multiplayer online game. 
But one thing that I really wanted to ask you was a question about project management. On a team with 400 people, how do you keep a sense of ownership over all the tasks that you hand out? How do all the people who are working on it feel like they own the project individually when they have to share it amongst so many? Yeah, I'll, I'll give my answer to that, and Chris, you can jump in. I think this goes back to the point I said earlier where as you know, creative directors, it's not our job to direct every last thing. Uh, in a big team, I mean, we wouldn't even want to do that, but on a big team, it's impossible. So really, it's about coming up with things like postcards, unifying themes, and then handing over those uh, more high-level direction to people and trusting them, trusting these smart, super talented people that we have on our team to do all the hard work and do it well, um, to fill in the gaps. And also that's, involving them in that process yeah. of coming up with those first images, showing them at that point, talking about you know changing and stuff. Also, we all sit together as a big team, like out in an open space, so we're constantly interacting, we're you know talking to each other about ideas. So I think that really helps everybody feeling like they're part of the part of the same process. And we still have the same culture. I mean, if anybody on the team at any time can call bullshit on me or Chris or, or anything, and in that big open setting, you know, it is a big it is a big team scrum, and we. Yeah, we mix it up. So basically, uh, high concepts, remembering to stay having large gatherings with your entire team, and then finally pushing down as much ownership as you can to the people that you're assigning work to. Mm -hmm. That's absolutely right. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for answering the question. <laughs> Better way than we did. Go for it. Who's next? Over here. Yeah. Hi there. Uh, as I'm sure everyone else would like to tell you, thanks again for this amazing talk. Uh, my question is more along the lines of narrative. Uh, Destiny obviously isn't the story of one man or even one group of people. It's the story of the world, the solar system, the galaxy, the universe, huge. How has your technique, how, what tools narratively have you been finding yourself moving towards in order to tell this much larger story? Well, I think if you uh, like the way that we tell stories at Bungie, I mean, we're cinematic storytellers. We like, we like that approach to storytelling. Um, but the great thing about Destiny, I would just say, is that for us, story isn't confined to the campaign in this world. Story informs other activities that you'll be playing in as well, and in a way that we never really could with Halo. So I can't, I can't talk too much about it today, but I would just say when you're building a big world, you want that narrative to go, to go everywhere. Mm -hmm. And most importantly, you know, the story that you're telling, the legend that you're building, it follows you from every activity. The character that you are in campaign is the character you are in multiplayer. And so it's really about creating one cohesive story across all the activities. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah, sure. Oh, also, and we're not really going all over the galaxy, just, just the solar system. That'd be crazy. Not yet. <laughs> Shh. Uh, I guess my question would have to handle with your change from moving from a fairly single-person action campaign to a large global presence. How are you handling the testing for that? Well, we're just the writer and the artist. <laughs> We have a lot of smart people who are, are working on that as we speak. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, look. The reality is, we we um, we know it's going to be a big a big task, but we also want to make sure that people have as good an experience as possible, and that we can share it effectively with as many people around the world as we can. And so, as much effort as we've put into art, um, trust me, we're putting a, a ton of effort into all those things that'll make the game a good experience. So. Mm -hmm. 
Yes, go for it. Um, uh, you talked on this a little bit, but how did you, uh, what was the process you guys went through from going from one kind of play style in Halo of that tanky soldier to the three various types of plays of, of character designs that you had in Destiny with the Hunter, the Warlock, and the Titan? Um, well, so we really wanted to create something, you know, these archetypes that different types of people would want to play. Uh, not just how they looked, but you know, also you know, how they played on the, on the battlefield, for example. So uh, it was actually really freeing for us as artists to not just have to make one, one character design or one uh, type of gameplay that you know, met everybody's needs you know, or desires. So it, it, was, it was cool to be able to you know, come up with those archetypes and you know, come up with the armored soldier and have the you know, more fantastic warlock and the one that's you know, sort of the bounty hunter. So that, that was really freeing for us. And it actually was, uh, um, it was actually pretty easy for us to, to brainstorm those ideas and come up with them. Sorry, we're blowing so quickly through questions, but, but go for it. Big fan. Um, how much money do I have to raise on Kickstarter to bring back Tiger Man? <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> uh, hi. Did anything um, that was cut from the previous designs, like Halo and stuff like that, because you have to leave stuff behind, did any, anything that was left over in the notebook make it into Destiny? I think ideas are always milling around in our heads. I mean, maybe if we didn't like point to something specifically, I think you know we're always coming up with crazy ideas, and I'm sure uh, you know things we had thought about back then have made their way into this game that maybe didn't fit then. So I, I can't think of anything specific to point out, but of course, yeah, we're always uh, coming up with lots of crazy ideas. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, sorry. Oh yeah, go for it. Hi. If I'm understanding correctly, it sounds like you have a pretty big gap in time between a first playable and your, the start of your creative process for world building. Do you find that's challenging? Are you, are you sort of thinking about that while playing other games like Halo in order to sort of, sort of think about your ideas in reality and player subjective experience? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we all share this frustration. I mean, this, we don't do anything different at Bungie. I mean, I think everybody is at a stage in the game development process where the game is not playable, and that's an extremely frustrating time. Um, you know, you can do as much art and paper design as, as you want, but it's not until all these elements come together. And with Destiny, for us, I think, you know, we've, we've been to this rodeo before with a, with a action shooter campaign, and we sort of know how that goes in multiplayer, but we're combining so many different developments you know, and uh, systems like investment, for example, building a character that uh, it's taken way longer to get this game to a state where it's playable. Um, but I'll just say that when Chris and I are joking about the characters that we want to be like a, a robot wizard and I want to be an awesome female hunter robot, which is the yeah, best choice, right. <laughs> um, we're, we're playing that now. I mean, we're, we're playing that at our desks with all, with all these systems online, and we're finally at that point where, you know, we really can begin to design the game for, for real. So it has been a long time in coming, but, uh, but playing it now, it's been, it's been awesome. Mm -hmm. We've crossed the great gap. Yep. So that's it. All right. Sorry, everybody. Uh, thanks for coming. We hope you learned a little something today. And we got a lot more to share in the months ahead, and we'll see you at E3. Yay.